The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. I want to stress from the outset that this pandemic is far from over. This is all about trust now and personal responsibility, just being careful and not being selfish. We need people to have faith that this vaccine is safe and that they should take it. The idea of an irreversible move was taken off the table. You can't do that when you have no idea where the virus is going to go. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Roger Hearing. Good afternoon, I'm Ewan Potts. The growing optimism over the UK's virus case count continues with numbers still on a downtrend. New cases dropped for a sixth day in a row with just under 25,000 recorded yesterday. That's down from more than 46,000 reported at this time last week. Hospital admissions, though, are on their way up and a lag between infections and admissions means that they may rise in coming days. The effect of England's reopening last Monday yet to show in the figures. At the same time, the UK is considering relaxing restrictions for travellers from the EU and the US, according to the Financial Times. The decision comes from a government review of travel rules that concludes this week and will consider whether fully vaccinated travellers from the EU and the US will be able to avoid quarantine. It may be easier to loosen rules for the EU, which of course already has digital health passes. Police officers are to be allowed to use stop and search powers more easily in England and Wales after the government decided to ease restrictions on them in an effort to tackle uh, knife crime. The move is likely to anger campaigners who said the rules unfairly target minority ethnic groups. The change is part of a wider package of crime measures from the government, including more electronic tagging and plans for every area to have a named local police officer. Well, let's welcome our guest today, Andrew Bridgen, Conservative Member of Parliament for North West Leicestershire. Andrew, uh, Welcome to Bloomberg Westminster. Uh, are you happy with this package of uh, crime measures? Do you think they go far enough? Well, it's all about the implementation and uh, whether there's the, the follow-through on, on the ground. Um, I think people have seen that words are cheap and uh, what they actually want to see is results. And that's what's going to impress the public. Uh, they've heard plenty of words in the past. But specifically, for example, stop and search, as you know, has been highly controversial, Andrew, not least because some people say, at Liberty, the, the, the pressure group amongst them, that these measures can compound discrimination because they do tend to focus on particular groups within society, particular communities. Well, when a crime is reported and uh, the suspected perpetrator of a certain ethnicity, it would be rather ludicrous to uh, go and stop and search people who are not of that ethnicity. And that does no one any favours. Uh, ultimately, the, the main, uh, in London, certainly where the knife crime's concerned, the, the main victims are, are young black men um, who are being killed by young black men. And these measures will protect those communities' children. A number of complaints uh, from the police, in fact, about this uh, package of, of measures. You would perhaps hope that they, you would hear, have more welcome from uh, the police. Are you bringing the police along with you with, with, these, with these plans? Um, I think we've seen um, doubtful leadership uh, within the police for some time. I think they've, they've got onto a certain, shall we dare we say, woke agenda. Uh, but ultimately, people want to see crime figures coming down. 
they want to see conviction rates rising and they want to feel safer. And um, they will back measures that deliver that. And the job of the police is to implement government policy and the law, uh, not to embark on their own particular crusades. Andrew, I mean, another way of looking at this, if one were talking about agenda, is, is to say the Conservative Party, Conservative government, under quite a lot of pressure on lots of different levels, not perhaps enjoying some of the results that showing in opinion polls, reaches for the very standard law and order agenda to try and get themselves back into public popularity. I mean, a cynic would look at it perhaps this way. But I know what the public expect. I mean, the public expect the, the Conservative government to be strong on law and order. Well, if a if a, a Conservative government with a majority of 80 isn't strong on law and order, the, the, the public will be thinking, what's the point of voting Conservative and who's going to deliver that for us? It certainly won't be the Labour Party. So um, that's, wh- that's where we are, Roger. What's your take on, on what the people of North West Leicestershire would like done uh, on crime, you've been you've been in touch with your constituents for for a long time. What's your what's your reading of of that mood? Well, we've um, interestingly we had a, a Labour Police and Crime Commissioner for five years, a four year term extended due to the lack of elections, and he took uh, my policing roster uh, and and my policing area is exactly the same as my constituency at North West Leicestershire. Um, took us down to eighteen full-time policemen covering 120 square miles and 106,000 people and that's 18 officers over 24 hours and including holidays so that would be only about five police at any one time in my constituency on the ground Um, uh, that was for several years now we've got a conservative uh, police and crime commissioner Um, interesting the Labour Police and Crime Commissioner six months before the scheduled elections put us back up to 84, and that's made a huge difference. What we want to see is community policing with policemen who stay in the area longer to get the local knowledge, uh, which is basically invaluable, rather than moving people around too often. And for that, there's got to be promotion opportunities in local areas. And obviously, with a force now of 84 officers for North West Leicester, opposed to 18, that's considerably better. But, Andrew, hasn't the position of the police been damaged by the last 18 months where, in part of the time, they have been forced to enforce measures that police have never really enforced in this country before? Things about how many people can gather in our house. Absolutely. What kind of Absolutely. I mean, Demands have been made on, on the police uh, during the, uh, the lockdown uh, that we've never seen in this country. And uh, I think, to an extent, it's damaged uh, the the standing of the police with the public, with some elements of the public. And ultimately, we don't, thank goodness, and we're not going to live in a police state, um, the police uh, police with consent. Uh, and for that, for the reduction of crime to be effective, we need the full cooperation of, of the, law, the, law, the majority law-abiding public. That has been damaged, but it can be rebuilt. Let's uh, pivot on to a related uh, subject, vaccine passports. Uh, I think it took a lot of people by surprise when the Prime Minister said they would be needed in nightclubs in September. Hmm. Are we all going to be carrying them to get into things by Christmas? No, and there's no need to. What we've seen in the UK is uh, an exemplar rollout, uh, procurement and rollout of the vaccine. We're now in a situation where 90% of adults in the UK have had one dose, 70% have had two, Um Probably, given the fact that we've had a number of infections, 92% of adults are carrying antibodies. 
so either from vaccination or having had the virus. Um, the whole world's looking at how we're dealing with this now. We're seeing, as, as I predicted over a week ago, that the, the virus is burning itself out. It, it hasn't got enough susceptible hosts out there to, uh, to maintain its, its R number, so that's below one. Um, I think, to be honest, I'm a little embarrassed that the government are trying to coerce young people who are, are more uh, vaccine hesitant, perhaps because they're at such low risk of having any complications if they do actually contract the, the virus. Um, and it's coercion. And we live in a country, quite rightly, where the government does not have the right, the state does not have the right to force you to have an injection. Um, it's unnecessary. Uh, it, they should never come in. I will vote against them every day of the week. It's a major infringement of, of liberties. If we have to have vaccine passports to travel to other countries, that's down to other countries' laws. I completely accept that. But domestic vaccine uh, passports to go to the pub, uh, the restaurant or, uh, or a nightclub, um, that is um, beyond the pale to me. And given where we are with the reduction in, in infections and the trajectory now uh, of um, of, of, of us coping with this uh, pandemic, um, I don't think we need them. And quite honestly, if we can't get out of this without those draconian measures, with our level of vaccination, um, well, the, the rest of the world should be very, very worried. But what about all the other things that come around that? For example, the uh, self-isolation measures. The government insisting the vast majority will have to go on that's because to August the, 16th. That's because, the government's, that's because the government's track and trace system is not working properly. We don't have sufficient tests to test uh, double vaccinated individuals. Uh, that's the only reason why. It's not, uh, it's not for anything else. All this stuff that's been done with school children, where one person in the, in the class has... Uh, has contracted the virus and the whole class has been off school for 10 days. The, the figures now show that 98% of pu school pupils have already had their education tremendously damaged uh, during the lockdown. They didn't contract uh, COVID. And of course, as we know, young, healthy children are the least likely to have any complications at all uh, from um, COVID-19. Indeed, that's why I so vehemently oppose them being vaccinated, because the risk from the vaccine, as marginal as it is, is far higher than the risk of COVID to them. But post, uh, post-Freedom Day, are you still wearing a mask? No, not at all. I think uh, the science over that has changed and he is tremendously dubious. I think unless you're uh, replacing your disposable mask every 20, 40 minutes, which I don't think many of us ever did, I think they're a very dubious uh, worth in combating the virus, but they are is a, a symbol uh, and a reminder to everyone that we're we're not back to normal. And um, I think that the sooner we get rid of them, uh, the better. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. 
More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. But let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics. Now, Britain's said to be planning to move ahead with its Sizewell Sea nuclear project, even without Chinese funding, as the country seeks to reduce its dependence on Beijing. The proposed £20 billion plant in Suffolk is said to be still viable, even without China's help. The government's reportedly exploring ways to remove the state-owned firm China General Nuclear from all future energy projects in the UK. MPs have called for a national register of children who are homeschooled. The committee says that more data needs to be collected to ensure that all children out of school get a suitable education. The report says the estimate is that more than 75,000 children are being educated at home. That's an increase of some 38% on the previous year. Now, Labour's leader has given his backing to his MP, Dawn Butler, who was kicked out of the House of Commons chamber last week for calling Boris Johnson a serial liar. The Labour leader, Keir Starmer, however, also backed the Deputy Commons Speaker, Judith Cummins, who expelled her, because she had implemented the rules that ban certain terms being used in the chamber. So what are the rules on what can and can't be said? And are ancient parliamentary procedural regulations really suitable for current politics? Joining us, I'm very pleased to say now, is Dr Ruth Fox, who's director of the Hansard Society, uh, which makes, of course, is prominent in talking about the way in which parliament works. So welcome, Dr Fox. Let me ask you first, what rules did Dawn Butler actually break? Well, the, the Bible of parliamentary procedure and practice, known as Erskine May, sets out that a member of the parliament cannot charge another member as having uttered what's described as a deliberate falsehood. So they can't charge that the, the member has lied. They can't impute false motives on the part of another member, and they can't misrepresent the language of, of another member. So the rule she broke is that she directly accused Boris Johnson of lying, that's not permitted. She could have used other language. She could have said that he'd misled the House. She could have said that he was inaccurate, that he'd got his facts wrong. She could have said that he'd erred, uh, that he'd been misled or misinformed. But, but making the deliberate accusation that he has deliberately misled the House, deliberately lied, is not permitted. Not, not to protect him or indeed any other MP, but to preserve the character of parliamentary debate, to ensure that there's sort of a you know, a, a degree of good temper and moderation in debate and that, that tempers are, are cooled and that there's a degree of respect and comity uh, between members when they're debating often difficult issues. What are some of the other uh, uh, other rules? What are the other, some of the other things that are banned uh, in the Commons? Well, I mean, there's a whole set of sort of unparliamentary language, if you like, things that you can't say about other members. So you can't say, you can't say a member's an idiot, you can't say they're a hypocrite, um, speakers ruled out members in the past for describing other members as hooligans, rats, swine, traitors. Traitor in particular uh, is not permitted. You can't you can't make uh, disloyal or disrespectful allegations and references to, to the Queen and to other members of the royal family. You have to be careful about what you say about the judiciary. Um, and you know, there's nothing new in this. These issues have been um, you know, developed over. You know, a couple of hundred years. I mean, historically, it's said that the roots of this were to cool tempers in the chamber when there was a real concern back in sort of, you know, 1700s that debate would spill out from the chamber into duels between members, into actual violence. And it happened rarely, but that's the root of this. 
concern today is it looks odd to the observer that somebody like John Butler gets removed from the house for a couple of hours uh, because she's accused a member of, of being a liar, and the person who's accused of being a liar, there doesn't appear to be any sanction. So that's the, the number of the problem. Yeah, and I mean, and, and as you say, these things go back a couple of hundred years, and and things were rather different then. I mean, I think if I'm correct, in fact, some of the proportions of the house are based on whether each member drawing a sword would be able to attack the other. The distance seems to be based on that. Well, I mean, this is archaic. We're in a modern political atmosphere. Surely these rules need to be updated. Well, in a sense, they are updated because the speaker the speaker takes into account context. Uh, he takes into account um, the way in which it's been said, the circumstances in which the word has been uttered, and, 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 and when it's said. Um, so, for example, you could you could say that, for example, the Conservative Party had lied, but you might not be able to say that Boris Johnson specifically, personally, had lied. Um, you know, you, you had an example in, in 2012, for example, where the, the, the chair, the speaker, tolerated an, a, a, an MP describing another member as guilty of spectacular insincerity, essentially, that they lied. Um, so but they are updated in, in terms of, of context. You also have to look at it and say, if the rules were updated and members were allowed to allege that a member had lied, where does that lead you? Because the, the risk is that members will be free to toss around a pretty serious allegation and it will become a free-for-all. And then the standards in conduct of debate would, would diminish. But parliamentary privilege allows allows MPs to say all sorts of things they wouldn't be allowed to say under the law outside the the, the chamber. Is there some sort of is there some sort of irony in that? In that in that the rules can be quite strict in, in terms of you know stuff in Anskin May, but they're actually allowed to say things which would be uh, you know libelous outside. Well, privilege is a, is a separate issue. And again, it, you know, it's a historic route, but it, it's designed to ensure that members can represent their constituents. So again, privilege doesn't protect the member. It protects what they are trying to uncover on behalf of their constituents. Um, and there have been concerns that members have actually sought to misuse that, that power that they have, um, that, that privilege. Um, and that's led to difficulties, you know, legal difficulties for, for Parliament and, and for particular cases that have been looked at in the court. Um, so again, you know, that concern about misusing a power, misusing a freedom that they have, um, you apply that to language and the, the concern would be that standards of debate um, would diminish. So it's important that the Speaker maintains the, the rules because generally speaking it supports and improves the conduct of debate. Um, many of us would wish it to be better than it is because it's the way that they debate. But nonetheless, you know, if you take away some of those, those rules or relax them, you know, it, it could be a slippery slope. But, I mean, the counterpoint to that is to say it's too much like an old boys debating club. It, it has rules that don't really reflect the times we are in. And Erskine May is not law, it's simply procedure. And that could surely be updated. And wouldn't a more modern tone to debate, which includes perhaps some uh, some fairly colourful language, actually improve matters? Yes. I mean, I think there's a good case for that, for reviewing some of this. Um, and in fact, the Procedure Committee of the House of Commons has indicated that it's going to review the standing orders of the House. And that's where you know, you've got an opportunity for members to revise the procedural rules and to give it some bite and to give the Speaker some additional powers if that's what they want in relation to the conduct of debate. 
to clarify some of these issues around what parliamentary language is permitted and what isn't. Um, you don't want to, to, to uh, go for the new laws on this. You know, that the procedures and practices of the House are a matter for the House itself. They're not a matter to put, put in law because that would invite the courts into judgments about Parliament, which is not a direction you want, you want to go in. But, but there are opportunities for members to, to engage with that review of standing orders. The disappointment for me is always that, you know, these procedural rules, they don't take much political and strategic interest in, in these issues and these opportunities until problems arise. And then often it's too late and they're complaining about the problem um, that, that, you know, has been something that's been buzzing away for, for decades. Um, and, you know, getting members to engage with things like a review of their, of their rules is actually quite difficult. Are there any um, egregious examples of people using uh, very antiquated rules to, to, to get their own way in, in, in the House? Does this ever happen where people uh, dig into the to the back pages of Erskine May and, 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 and <laughs> use things which perhaps they shouldn't be using in the 21st century? Pretty rare these days. I mean, it's quite a rare member that digs into Erskine May in any detail, <laughs> to be honest. Um, Jacob Rees-Mogg, actually, is probably a, a, one of those rare exceptions. Um, I mean, Erskine May used to publish a list up to the 1950s of the terms that were deemed unparliamentary language. They no longer do that. It's sort of something, a list that's maintained sort of by the clerk and by the speakers, and, and, and the, the speaker sort of reflects on, on this and, and rules, uh, and, and the precedence of successive rulings inform uh, future behaviour and future decisions that, that he will make. Um, so, so, so that that is pretty rare, but clearly there are sort of sometimes procedures which have fallen into sort of disuse that are sometimes resurrected. So, actually, the, the most obvious example is, is John, uh, John Burko when he was Speaker um, when he took over in 2009. He resurrected a concept known as the urgent question. Was the nursery May was in the standing orders of the House, but had barely been used by members for for decades. Um, and he resurrected that to, to, to ensure that there was more topicality in questioning of ministers at the dispatch box day to day. So not quite uh, yeah. an individual backbencher using it, but, but you know, the speaker himself, um, you know, going back into us in May and, and utilising something that had fallen into a bane. And Dr. Ruth, very, uh, very briefly, if you wouldn't do it in mind at the end, uh, the fact that we've actually broken a lot of precedents with everything that's gone on during the pandemic, MPs debating from remotely and everything else, could that actually be a move in the logjam? Perhaps more things will change now. Yeah, I think that's going to be the interesting question when members get back in, in September and October. Get, do they come back to you know, sitting at Westminster as normal? Are they happy with that? Are there procedures and practices of the last 18 months that they actually quite like and would like to retain? And does that lead to a bit more of a sort of upsurging interest in, in reforming the procedures and practices of the House? There's not much evidence of it at the moment. A lot of them just want to get back to, to some semblance of normality. Um, but things like proxy voting and so on, there may well be, you know, give it sort of six months after they've, they've been back, there may well be interest in, in, in reviewing that. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London.
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.